morning you can say from the depths of your soul that there is no one there is nothing better than him and knowing him and uh, this morning what a privilege it is for us to be here I want to thank you for making the choice to be here to gather and worship for those that are joining us online we want to thank you guys for tuning in and in the parking lot but as we begin our service just want to make uh, one important announcement just need to clarify we are looking forward to everything getting back to normal and opening back up but just to clarify some of what our normal going back into this on November 7th is going to look like. On November 7th, that Sunday morning, we will begin Sunday school back at 9.30 that morning in all of our classes. Then at 10.30, we'll have our worship service here in the Jennings Building, but at this time, we'll also start a new kids' worship service that will be in the sanctuary, and that is for K through 5, and that will begin November 7th. Then that following win uh, that Sunday evening, we will begin the evening worship service, and we'll have youth Bible study but for right now, we're delaying Awana. There's a couple reasons for that, but um, we hope to start that back in January. So there'll be no Awana on Sunday evening, just evening worship service and youth Bible study. And uh, if you're interested in serving in Awana, as we look to hope and hopefully open that up in January, uh, some of you might want to come out of retirement from Awana, and we'll sign you back up. Uh, but we need a lot of workers for that, so we're looking forward to that. And then Wednesday, November 10th, we will be having our normal schedule. Uh, we'll have prayer meeting that night. We'll have nursery for babies to twos, mission friends, uh, team kid, uh, youth, middle school, high school. The only thing that will be different for right now is we will not be having choir practice. That will begin hopefully in January. So everything is almost normal. Uh, so we're looking forward to everything being back to normal. But what a privilege it is to be here. I'm going to ask you to stand. And as we begin our service, I want you to think about this. And all that's going on in your life, we all have things to be thankful for, don't we? We take so much for granted, but the psalmist says in Psalm 100, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. So we all today hopefully can make that choice to say, God, I'm going to thank you, and I'm going to praise you today. So let's worship the Lord together.
Amen. Thank you. Well, we're going to institute something else that we've that we've uh, kind of put on hold since COVID for a long time. Uh, if you're a visitor, typically during our services, we'll have a time where we can have prayer. The church can come down and pray. And we're going to start that back this morning. Uh, before we do that, though, I just want to mention a couple prayer requests we have here. Shirley Lambert's sister passed away this past week, um, and they had her funeral service um, Friday night and had the graveside Saturday. Also, David Moose, uh, his, his mom, Judy, passed away. I went to church with uh, the Moose family at Three Forks Baptist Church. She's a wonderful person. So remember David and his dad and the rest of that family in prayer. Then also my good friend Jeff Chapman, pastor of Little River Baptist Church, is in desperate need of your prayers. He's in the hospital uh, and is really serious. And if I was in the hospital, Little River Baptist Church, Jeff would lead that church to pray for me. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, uh, to lift him up in prayer. And if you feel comfortable, uh, this time use it to pray for your family, pray for yourself, pray for these prayer requests, pray for your church, pray for this service, okay? Because we need to be a church of prayer, amen? So as the praise team leads us in this prayer, will you meet me here at the altar and then Mark's going to lead us in this time of prayer. So you come as they play this morning. Come to the altar of Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was walked with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Um, I have a few things I need to say. Next week, we're going to start collecting money for Christmas and T-Bill. If you'll be prepared to do that, starting next week, we have 30 families we're going to reach out, reach out in our community for. And then this morning, I went to the hospital at, over at Fry. Remember uh, Brenda Helms? She's at, she's in uh, she's in the ER. They may some, uh, keep her for the day or tonight. So you pray for her and her family and Rick. And uh, I want to ask you to pray for Trent, my son in India. I want you to remember him. Uh, he asked us to pray for him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you. We pray for all these needs we've mentioned this morning. And Father, your grace is sufficient. And Father, we're reminded, Lord, that you lead us beside still waters and you restore our soul. Lord, you're good to us. Your mercy is everlasting. And Father, you know our needs. And Father, we pray that you'd meet them according to your riches in Christ Jesus. Father, this morning, I pray, Father, as we come before you, we're here to worship you and to glorify you and to honor you. But we're so grateful that we have one to cast all our care on. And, Father, you hear us because you care for us. And, Father, this morning we love you because you first loved us. And, Father, we want to thank you for the privilege just to come before you and to know you and to be yours and to call you Father, that you're our Savior and our Lord. And, Father, we want to thank you for that. Father, we want, to give, be, we want to be grateful and worship you because you're our Lord and Savior. And Father, we thank you for who you are. And Father, we pray for all these needs. Those who've lost loved ones this week, we pray that you'd be the God of all comfort and peace for them and strength today and the days to come. Father, you're real. I pray you'd manifest yourself to those who need you. And Father, make yourself known. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
pressing fears, tormenting doubt. Prayer after prayer, still there's no way out, and it seems like pain is all you team. Wasn't that a blessing? Let's give the Lord another hand clap of praise. Wonderful. Wonderful. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Last week we looked at this thought, uh, the one night stand that changed the kingdom. And it really certainly changed this kingdom forever. It changed David forever. It changed his family forever. And who knew that in one night, David could literally wipe away 50 years of good living. Isn't it something? 
Now, what I would tell you this morning based on the title is that when you go through something like David did, you have two options. You confess your sins. Show that verse on the screen, guys. You either confess your sins, okay, or you cover it up. Notice, he who covers his sins will not prosper. That's a promise. But whoever confesses, and what that says is, God, I agree with you, I'm guilty, okay? A lot of people confess, but they don't do the second part, and forsakes them will have mercy. I don't get what I deserve. Isn't that a blessing? God's a God of grace and a God of mercy. Now, after chapter, or after verse 4, if David would have confessed, okay, he still would have to deal with some consequences, of course, because you're dealing with people, all right? But David has this bright idea. I think I'll just cover it up because he's 50 years old. All right? 50 years old. And he's committed this heinous thing against this person. Notice what happens in verse 6. You can stand with me if you will. I'm sorry. Then David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. That's Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That just means go be with your wife. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David the saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now listen to what Uriah says. And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields, Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What convictions? Isn't it amazing how Uriah has such... He's a Hittite. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But he has stronger spiritual convictions than David did at this time in his life. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also and tomorrow, and I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. Let's get the old boy drunk. All right, let's see what happens then. And at the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David's got big time problems here. His plan didn't work. It didn't work. Uriah, even drunk, was a better man than David. Then verse 14, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people, the servants of David, fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech and the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebez? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Man, how sad. So the servant went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him. And then the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field, and we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now notice how depraved David is at this point. Listen to what he says. Then David said to the messengers, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Well, that's part of battle. 
You sign up for war, you could die. It could happen, he says. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him, encourage Joab. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David's plan is going great. Now everybody look at me. But. But. David had convinced everybody, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sees it all, people. Why not confess what he already knows and prosper and have mercy instead of going through what David does for the rest of his life? Every step of the way, every time he told Uriah to go to his house was a wake-up call for David, but David would not heed it. I pray this morning will be a wake-up call for you. This invitation is going to be a very important invitation for many of us this morning. In the parking lot, watching online, whether you watch it next week, you know, you can go online and watch this message a year from now, probably, okay? And it can be a great wake-up call for you to confess or to cover up. Fathers, we come to you in prayer. Lord, um, we all have a little bit of David in us, if we're honest. And it may not be adultery, it may be something else. Lord, we all, I think, have the temptation, not just for sin, but to cover it up and live in deception. But Lord, I'm reminded we can fool everybody, but we can't fool you. And Lord, nobody is as, as forgiving or as merciful as you are. Isn't it amazing how we'll run to everything and everybody else for help, but we don't run to you when we mess up? Father, help us to learn today. Lord, this is one of the longer chapters in 2 Samuel, and it all deals with adultery and the aftermath. Father, you've slowed down the biography of David just to teach us some things here, and I pray that we'd learn from it. And Father, we'll thank you and praise you for the things that you alone can do. In Jesus' name I pray and all of God's people said together, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The dictionary defines cover-up as this, an attempt to conceal evidence of wrongdoing, error or incompetence, or other embarrassing information. In a passive cover-up, information just simply is not provided. In an active cover-up, deception is used. When a scandal breaks, the discovery of an attempt to cover it up is often regarded as more reprehensible than the original deed. David's cover-up was even worse than the actual deed. That's why God would plead with us today. He would plead with us today to confess our sins. Notice three things about this passage this morning. First, we see David's passion. And this takes us back to last week. Notice verse 4. This is the one-night stand. He had a one-night stand. Notice. Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, showing that David was the only person who could be the dad. Then she returned home. As I said last week, there's no candles, no music, no romance, no nothing. You come here, we'll do this thing, and then you go back home. One night stand. Welcome to America. Happens every day, probably every weekend in America, something like this happens. Okay? David is probably 50 years old. Think about your passions, man, if you're 50 or older. David did not even have a midlife crisis up until this point. God had blessed him so much, everything in his life was going great. He was known all over the world at that time as being a great king. He had wealth. He had enlarged the borders of Israel further than anyone had ever enlarged them. As, the, as verse 1 tells us, as the, the men went out to war, when kings usually went, he stayed home and he slept in his bed until evening. David was happy and satisfied. Typically, Satan doesn't tempt you when you're down and out. It's when things are going well. And David was tempted. 
He saw this woman, and the Bible says he couldn't take his eyes off of her. Then he sent messengers, and the messengers said, Is this not Bathsheba? Mentioned her by name. Is this not the daughter of Eliam? Mentioned her daddy by name. And said, Is this not the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Mentioned him by name. What they were saying is, Don't do this, David. She is married. You're about to break the seventh commandment, which says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. It so affected his son, this, this instance. Now the son of Bathsheba and David is Solomon. After this child dies that she's pregnant with, they have Solomon. Listen to what Solomon says in the book of Proverbs where, you're, where a parent is given a child advice. His son Solomon would speak on this. He says, Why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? Question mark. Let me ask you, Alexander County men, why be intoxicated with another man's wife? That's what the song of Solomon, or what Solomon says. Then he goes on to say this in the next verse. For your ways are in full view of the Lord. He examines all your paths. And then you look back at verse 27. David fooled everybody but the Lord. He thought he'd covered this up, but God sees all. Then Solomon goes on to say this in the next chapter. Talking about adultery between a man and a woman. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can you do that? Can you? Can you put fire in your lap and your clothes not be burned? You can't. He goes on to say this. Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Promise from the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says, Let the marriage bed be undefiled. God will judge those who defile it. That's what he says. That's just a promise from the Lord. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Yet if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, even if he's starving. Though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows into disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. David's shame, we're still talking about today, 3,000 years later. We just are. It's just part of it. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury. Maybe this is why David was covering it up. Listen to what Solomon says. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. You hearing me, men? You want to have your greatest enemy in your life till you die? Commit adultery with another man's wife. And I hope you're listening on Facebook this morning. Commit adultery with another man's wife, and his revenge will show no mercy. Solomon says, and he will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it is. There are no sins like sexual immorality. Everything in David says, don't do it, you shouldn't do it. You do it anyway. For David, for David, it was a lifetime of consequences. Listen to this. Is it possible to erase a lifetime of usefulness in one moment of weakness? David did. Listen to this. It would cause four of his children's lives. Look at, look at verse 4. Four kids' lives for David. Just because of this one night stand. Probably seemed fun, probably felt good, and when he, when he woke up the next morning, he probably thought, what a, what a great night. Cost him four of his li children's lives, split his kingdom in half. Ha that's why you have the northern and southern kingdom from David's life on. Yeah, and they always were at enmity with each other. Northern and southern kingdom. And turned him into a murderer of a trusted friend. That's why the Bible says to flee sexual morality. It's just different. All sins are not the same. That's not good theology or good doctrine. 
The penalty for sin as far as being lost in salvation is the same. All sins are not the same. The Bible never says to flee lying, even though you shouldn't lie. never says to flee gossiping, even though you shouldn't gossip. It says flee sexual morality. It's just different. Paul told the church of Corinth, do you not know that you become one with that person? Whether you're saved or lost, you become one. A part of you belongs to that person for the rest of their lives. And when you're in a covenant marriage, God says you have no right to give that part of yourself to anybody else. Flee sexual morality. He didn't even say flee gluttony, aren't you thankful? Flee sexual morality. Run from it. Flee it. Whatever it takes, leave it. Everything within David said don't do it, and David did it anyway. I would say this. If you're here today and you're facing this temptation, and you feel like giving in, flee. Change your job. Oh, I don't think I can do that. Okay, then don't. Delete your social media account. Change churches if you have to. The number one reason people have left East Tailswood Baptist Church, I say this often in the last 10 years, is for this very reason right here. Adultery. Flee sexual morality. Look at verse 4 again. Is it worth it? Some of you are dealing with this right now, probably. Is it worth it? Whether you're in this congregation this morning or not, you may be doing it on social media or whatever. When David went to bed that night, he probably thought, I got away with it. That was fun. No harm, no foul. But about a month or so later, look at verse 5. She says this, I'm pregnant. The only recorded words of Bathsheba in this whole long chapter is I'm with child. Three words. Change a man's life forever. I'm pregnant. David right here should have confessed to God. He should have confessed to Bathsheba. And he as a man should have confessed to Uriah and just dealt with it then, right? Just dealt with it. Probably their marriage could have been saved. They would have dealt with the issues with the kid. And then they would have just lived together. Or lived apart. But they would have lived in the same kingdom together. But David doesn't. Notice this. You see David's passions. And men, if you're, if you're 50 and older, how about getting some godly passions? All right? David's acting like he's in ninth grade or 11th grade. He's a grown man. He's, a, he's the king. God had different requirements for the king. And here David is because little by little he let his spiritual life chip away, chip away, chip away. But notice here, David has a plan. Think about this. Not only was Bathsheba married, she was married to one of David's mighty men. Notice verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Look at those two words. His name means Yahweh is my light. He was from the Hittite nation. Listen, the Hittites are mentioned more than 50 times in the Bible. They were descended from Heth, the son of Canaan, the great-grandson of Noah. And they ruled the area of Syria and eastern Turkey. At one time, they were an empire. A small empire in that part of the world. Abraham was well acquainted with the Hittites. He bought the burial cave for Sarah from them in Genesis 23. And Esau took wives from the Hittites. Matter of fact, most of Abraham's family was buried in that cave among the Hittites. The religion of the Hittites, this is where it got bad, was a pluralistic worship of nature. They believed in various gods over the elements of earth, sky, weather. These gods were often listed as witnesses on treaties and oaths. Can you imagine? They would have the earth and the sky on treaties and oaths. As in most other pagan societies, this nature worship led to despicable practices which brought the wrath of the true God on them. And Uriah is converted from this depraved, satanic nation. 
and joins David to fight for the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. That's who this guy is. He's been fighting for David for 20 years. Protected his life for 20 years. Oftentimes in adultery, it happens between those that are closest. Oftentimes. It's so sad to see families break apart. Friendships shattered forever. Over verse 4? Are you kidding me? Verse 4. Over verse 4. The guy's 50-some years old in verse 4. Come on. Look at verse 6. This is David's plan. First off, he's going to flatter him and send him home. Verse 6 and 7, he says, how's the battle going? How's Joab? How's things going, Uriah? He probably says, you're, you're one of my best warriors. And Uriah probably thought, this is great. The king's complimenting me. He brought me in from battle. It's kind of weird, though, because ba- we're in battle, but he's complimenting me. And then look at verse, verse 8. David said, Uriah, go down and wash your house. Go down to your house and wash your feet. Basically what that was, Stephen Davies says this. David wasn't suggesting that because Uriah's feet were smelly, smelling up the palace. It was a euphemism for go home and relax and enjoy an evening with your wife. He also sent a present of food with Uriah and says, you guys eat, have a good night. Obviously, David wants Uriah to spend a night with his wife Bathsheba, and any pregnancy would be considered Uriah's. If Bathsheba keeps quiet, no one would ever know, and evidently Bathsheba is willing at this point to keep quiet. Now notice verse 9. The Bible says this, but Uriah slept at the door of his king's house with all the servants. Uriah says, how can I do this? This is what he says. How can I be with my wife when my brothers are in battle? How can I do that? This is a wake-up call for David. This should be. This should be a wake-up call for David to let him know that, hey, something is wrong. Something is wrong here. You got Uriah, you got the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, is dealing with him. I heard uh, one pastor say that he read a book on the Secret Service, especially the men that guarded the president. It's a book of just people that guarded presidents over the years. And they said, what is your greatest asset as a Secret Service? And he says, it's not necessarily technology. It's not necessarily our weapons. But he said, it's what God gives us all. It's the sixth sense. He says, we train our guys so well that they can go into a room and know something's wrong. Let's know it. He says, there's been a lot of things stopped because guys say on Secret Service deployment, they're like, something's not right here. This is bad. See, God's given us all that. It's called your conscience. David knew in verse 4, this is not right. But he fought it off. He fought it off. See, God has also given you the Holy Spirit. You know when you do something, before you do it, that it's wrong. You know it. Especially when you're dealing with this situation. It's not like he took a little money from work, which you shouldn't do either. He took another man's wife, a good friend trusted friend, a warrior, one of his buddies probably. And you know, all every step of the way, especially with Uriah's convictions, which were so strong. Then what does David do in verse 13? Notice on the screen, the Bible says this, he got him drunk. Now when David caught him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. At that evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. One man said this, he said, Someone has put it well, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. He is. Uriah had convictions. Do you have convictions, men, that are unbreakable? I mean, they're unbreakable for you. I will not break this conviction. It's something God gave me in my heart. I will not break it. Uriah says, I'm not going down there. My men are, my men are fighting in battle. i got convictions about that. They're fighting the arcs out there. They're fighting in the name of Yahweh. 
And you want me to get drunk and go be with my wife? I'm not going to do it. So David's got bigger problems. So what does David do? Notice verse 14. In the morning it happened. There's that word again. It happened. It means a change. Something's changing here. Something's changing here forever when it says it happened. That David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. You know what he wrote? A death, death warrant. He wrote his death warrant. Philip Keller says this. He says, one cannot help but ponder what the outcome might have been had Uriah dared to open the letter. See, you're not supposed to break the seal of the king. That's how, that's, that's how strong Uriah's convictions were. He didn't know what David wrote, but he, he knew better than to peek because he had strong convictions. He was so loyal. But Philip Keller says, one cannot help but ponder what the outcome might have been had Uriah opened the letter. If but for an instance he had set aside his loyalty to the king and broken the seal to read the royal orders. The whole course of Israel's empire might have changed in an hour. In the white heat of his flaming anger, Uriah might have easily have returned to rush at the king and use his valiant sword to sever the royal head. It would not be the first time a monarch was murdered in revenge. David's very life and the entire future of his reign dangled on the slim thread of Uriah's unwavering loyalty. Wow, what a man Uriah was. David says, I so trust you and your convictions that I'm going to give your death warrant and put it in your hand you're going to take it to Joab. Uriah was a good man. He did not deserve any of this. He did not ask for any of this. He loved his wife. And David put the death warrant in his hands. That's how depraved David has gotten at this point in his life. One man said this. There's another principle here that's worth pausing to add to the record. When someone becomes captured, willingly enslaved by some sin and the ensuing cover-up, they rarely, if ever, stop to think here, here it is that sin has a way of hurting the most, those who you trust the most, and those who you love the most. One of David's mighty men, faithful, loyal friend, is carrying in his hand an order from his king that will end his life. And Joab was his field commander. And listen, when Joab read the letter, automatically he knew. Joab knew automatically what David had done. And scholars say that Joab blackmailed David till the end of his life. Be careful who your friends are. Be careful who you tell your stuff to. You know, when I first started this series on David, I preached that message on trust. Who do you trust? I said, can you trust your spouse to share the worst about you? Can you? A lot of people can't. Can you, can you trust your best friend? If you shared the worst about you to them and asked for their help, or would they tell everybody else? David sends the worst about him to Joab, and Joab blackmailed him the rest of his life. See, when you're living in sin, your friends are living right there with you. And they're probably not the best people to get advice from if they're living right there with you. Joab blackmailed him the rest of his life. And notice what happens in verse 17. The Bible says, Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Now think about this. Innocent people always get hurt. Always get hurt. In a case of adultery, it's usually the kids, the other spouse. Innocent people always get hurt. Look, these people, these servants of David... They died because of David's sin. Because of verse 4. They had to go with Uriah to the front of the battle and they had all died with him. Innocent people always get hurt. One person put it this way. with What David did with Bathsheba was a hot-blooded sin. It was passion. It was lust. What he did with Uriah was a cold-blooded sin. It was mean, depraved, and it was murder. Once you give in a temptation, you're faced with two choices. Confess your sin or conceal it and cover it up. For David, one lie leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. Covering your sin will always cost you more than confessing your sin. Did you hear that? 
Covering your sin will always cost you more than confessing your sin. Let me say that again. In case you're wondering, covering your sin will always cost you more than confessing your sin. The Bible says if we confess our sin and forsake it, we will receive mercy. David's not going to receive mercy until he makes this right. God, God is not going to shine his face on David until he makes this right. This is how far away from God sin has taken David. Now notice verse 25. Notice David's response. Then David said to the messengers, Let's say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. How sad. Wow, we had some servants killed and we had, David, we had Uriah killed. He was a good man. Served me for 20 years. Such is war. Life happens. Don't sign up for the military if you don't want to die, right? That's what he's saying. That's where David's gotten to. That's where he's gotten to the point. This, this is what happens. Now think about this. After Bathsheba mourns in verse 26 and 7, he marries her. And things are looking good for David. But notice the third thing, David's problem. We saw his passion, his plan. Now notice David's problem. Look at verse 27. And that first word will get you every time. David forgot one simple thought that God already knows. And I'll say this to you. Go ahead and do what David did if you want to. But understand, you're not going to get away with it. You may with your family. You may go to your grave and nobody know about it, but God knows about it. You don't want to go to your grave with this type of sin unconfessed. You do not want that. You do not want to stand before God on Judgment Day as a Christian and give an account for this. You better give an account for it now instead of then. David thought he got away with it, but God already knows. Your family may not know this or theirs, but the Lord knows. Confess your sin. Think about how your lives are monitored today. With social media, with cell phones, cameras, satellites that can almost zoom into your house, drones, right? But God is everywhere. He is omniscient, He's omnipresent, and He's omnipotent. David reminds us of this in Psalm 139. Maybe he's thinking about this when David said this. God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The light will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God is an all-seeing and all-knowing God. He sees everything we do. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.13. He makes this statement, but there is no, look at the word no, no. One scholar put it this way, no means absolute negation, no exceptions here. You can run, but you cannot hide. Why not? Because God sees all, all our thoughts, our actions, everything hidden in our heart and unknown to your mate, God knows. Spurgeon put it this way, thinking about this verse, the eternal watcher never slumbers and his eyes never sleep. The psalmist, thinking about this thought too, seeing that God knows everything about us, in Psalm 90 verse 8 says, you have placed your iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Spurgeon goes on to say, There are no secrets before God. He unearths man's hidden things and exposes them to light. Solomon said this in Proverbs five or Proverbs fifteen, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Look, no creature, no created thing or thing created. Contemplate what the writer is saying, one scholar says. Not a single created thing in the entire universe and the whole of creation is unexposed before God's omniscient eye. And all means all. 
No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. Tozer put it this way, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations and all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven, in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, evil, good, heaven and hell, and our thoughts and our actions. God knows all. God knows. God knows what you're doing and will not forget it until you make it right. Do you hear me? God knows what we've done and will not forget it and cleanse us from it until we make it right. There are no statues of limitations with God. Are you covering up sins from 20 years ago from your spouse? Good question, isn't it? Tough question. This invitation is going to be very important for a lot of us. If you're watching, if you're in the parking lot or watching on Facebook or go to this web, our webpage later, the question is this, are you hiding things from your spouse from 20 years ago? You want to get right with God, then you make it right. That's what confession is. See, David waited over a year. Over a year. There are statues of limitations with God. At any moment, David could have stopped and said, I sinned, and God would have walked him through it. At any moment, before Uriah died, God could have said, or David could have said, God, have mercy on me and extend your grace to my life, and God would have walked him through it. But David wouldn't do it. In four short weeks... From the time verse 4 happened to the time verse 5 happens, where Bathsheba says, I'm a child, David broke six of the Ten Commandments. Think about that. Fifty years old. The Jews love the Ten Commandments. He, first, he coveted another man's wife. Second, he committed adultery. Third, he murdered her husband. Fourth, he stole his wife. Fifth, he lied about it. And sixth, he dishonored his family. Basically, he undid one night what he built over 50 years. David learned the lesson the hard way. Listen, this is why God sent Jesus to the cross. We all make a mess of our lives at times. We all do. We all mess up. We all have a little David in us. And if you can go, you can go to Jesus and get forgiveness every single time, even though the consequences of your sin may last for a while. You reap what you sow, good or bad. That's just a universal principle. But you get forgiveness when you run to Jesus. Listen to this. I would encourage you today to confess and forsake your sin. After David had been dead some time, one of his descendants, Abijah, takes the throne. Now, this David's his great-great-great-great-grandfather. He becomes the king of Judah because the kingdom split. He was a wicked king, and God made sure this king, well, wicked king would be followed by a son who was a godly king. Now, listen to this. When God sets his son on the throne who's a godly king, God tells him this. I'm giving you the throne not because you're good, not because I love Jerusalem, but because I love your father David. And then this son, Abijah's son, writes this about David. Notice what he says in 1 Kings 15. This is on his, this would, let's say it's David's tombstone. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Years later. Now, read that up into the comma and then don't read the last. That's going to be your epitaph one day. Are you going to have the comma and accept or just period there? See, that's up to you. 
So you have a decision to make today. Are you going to confess to God or are you going to cover it up? And your deal may not be adultery. I hope it's not. It may be something else. But I would encourage you today to confess and not cover up. Let's read that again. His great, 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 great grandson wrote this about him. Never met David. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life. Wouldn't it be nice to end it there? Except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Never left him. And to this day, there have probably been more movies, more books, more plays and songs written about this. The only thing more that's written more about is the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection. Bless David's heart. A lot is riding on this invitation. I'm going to encourage you to do the right thing. I'm going to ask your musicians to come. And the question I ask you, as Beverly plays softly, is this. And it's your decision. Are you going to confess today to God? Not to me, but to God. Or are you going to cover it up? Confess or cover it up? The Bible says this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray this, Lord, from this day forward, I want to please you in every area of my life. Father, today I confess this sin to you. Forgive me and I forsake it with your help today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus... I would encourage you to place your faith and trust in Christ today. Jesus died in your place. He bore God's wrath on the cross because you're, you're a sinner and you've broken God's laws. And you have no hope of salvation outside of Jesus. So place your faith in the resurrected Christ today. Then if you're here today and you're born again, I ask you this, are you going to confess today or cover up? Pray this, Father, I confess this sin to you today. I ask for your forgiveness to cleanse me. And Lord, today, by your help and by your grace, I make a decision today to forsake it. I will forsake this sin today with your help. Father, we want to thank you so much for the grace that you offered. Lord, your forgiveness is instant and it's eternal. Lord, your mercy is instant and it's eternal. Your grace is instant and eternal. Why would we not confess to you instead of covering up. Lord, what an important invitation this is today for all of us. Lord, as I said before, we all got a little bit of David in us. Lord, help us not to go through the things he did. Help us to trust in a loving, caring, all-powerful, gracious God. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that's never placed their faith and trust in you, that today, by your grace and through the Holy Spirit, you would save for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Well, God bless you and amen. You stand with us, and Sharon's going to lead us in a verse of a, of a song, and then we'll be dismissed.
Thank you, Sharon. I got one quick announcement.